What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, Matt. I'll tell you why. Look, when I was in the prison, I Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I'm Matt Ralston. And I am William Nogueira. And first of all, we want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. Bill, what uh, what, what are your plans for Christmas? <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> well, Matt, I plan on going on my yacht this weekend because, you know, the water's really nicely in the bay. No, I'm stuck in a four by nine cell. I'm probably not going to be going outside because, well, everybody's on vacation. So my Christmas will pretty much suck. I don't have a nice sailboat that I can take out this weekend. I definitely don't have a nice bed to sleep in. So how's your your Christmas going to be, Matt? I am actually going to go to Catalina Island on the boat and... You see what I mean? You know, I'm not trying to rub it in. Yeah, I, I will say I didn't get any Christmas presents. I don't think I'm going to be getting any, and I think it's the first year. So that's probably just, you know, a, a preview of things to come. But I don't I don't need anything anyway, you know. Well, that's right. What more could you want, Matt? you got a nice boat, you know. You go to Catalina. Hey, life is good. Yeah, just, you know, just something. Something would have been nice. Just letting family and friends know. Anyway, thank you guys for listening, and we really appreciate it. Merry Christmas. Have a happy holidays. And today we're going to do something because we have so many listeners overseas, especially in England, in the United Kingdom. We have a lot of listeners there. And so we wanted to cover a case that takes place over there, and we're going to be doing a little more of that in the near future. And this is a guy named Mark Martin, and he is deemed Nottingham's first serial killer. And we're going to talk about him. First, I just want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. If you have any listener questions, we will get to those next week. You can send those to Facebook or Instagram, Death Row Diaries, and I'll read them and pass them on to Bill. And you should follow us on Patreon, where you'll have access to bonus content that you won't hear other places. In fact, just now, 
I posted an episode on Patreon about the Moscow, Idaho, college town murders. And that's available on Patreon if you want to check it out. It's, uh, I think you can give a, a really low amount. So it's, it's not so much uh, that you're paying a lot of money. But you have access to bonus content and other stuff that's otherwise not available. And that is, of course, patreon.com slash death row diaries. Bill, let's talk about Mark Martin. Boring name. Pretty interesting guy as far as a killer goes. Not that he's an interesting individual. There are a few things that are atypical about this case that I found. What do you think? It is really nuts, you know, and a lot of people have, I respect people that have kind of a plan for their lives, you know, at a young age, they say, I want to be a professional football player, or I want to be, you know, an entrepreneur, and they do that, and at some point, pretty early on, this guy does that, but he's pretty misguided, because his goal is to become a serial killer. But here we see it 
in a bit of a twist, but he's expressing himself. He's telling people that he wants to be a serial killer. That this is what he, you know, I mean, well, his parents, of course. Um, his uh, mother, obviously, is not part of his life. He lives with his father. But we see something happen to him very early on, and that he's almost disengaged, or he has disassociated himself from how other... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And what I mean by that, Matt, is that at a very early age, he tries to smother a child because the child was crying. I mean, that right there, you can't help but look at that and say, okay, what happened to this child or what is this child thinking? that at such an early age, he tries to smother another human being. It's not a dog, it's not a cat, he's not torturing and letting fires, he jumps straight to people. And that's the first thing he does that really raises eyebrows, he tries to smother a child. The only thing I can think is if, if he's not simply created this way, if there's not some problem of bacteria on his brain or something in utero or something genetic going on, is that maybe at too young of an age, he saw like some media of some kind of serial killer and he couldn't process it. And I'm not saying that that the media can create a serial killer or anything. My only experience is when I was growing up, really dumb kids listened to gangster rap and they thought that they were gangster rappers. It really is a thing that happened, <laughs> and everyone else, thought, you know, knew it was entertainment. So that's all yeah. I can think. No, I agree. But, but I mean, that's like a person that sees a, a Jesse James movie, goes out, grabs his father's rifle, runs down to the local liquor store, and robs it. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. It's a huge jump for a person that understands that yes, he, he thinks that Jesse James is cool. That's a big difference in actually robbing a bank or something. So that this guy likes serial killers, but he sees nothing wrong. There's no conscience, nothing. He just tries to smother a child. That tells you right away, disassociation, antisocial, all these things are going on in his head that he doesn't understand. He doesn't have the tools to try and process them. And right away, he acts out what he's really thinking. As I said before, serial killers are not made. They're born this way. And this guy was born for one thing. It appealed to him, and he immediately tried to live it out. Yeah, and the only excuse I heard explaining his behavior was that he was bullied, and he was bullied because he had a birthmark on his face, which is pretty small, actually. And I would just like to say, when I was growing up in Alaska, in my town, there were two kids that had birthmarks on their faces, and they were two of the most popular kids in town. So I don't think the birthmark was really the issue, whether or not he was bullied. But that's that's such a weak um, excuse if that's the best you've got to point to, you know. Yeah, and from what I understand, the baby was crying. That's all it was doing was crying. So he responds by smothering it. That, that immediately, I mean, we, we've seen other serial killers at, at a very early age. What Ed Kemper comes to mind, the co-ed killer. He tried to drown another kid, and then he made the excuse that, you know, oh yeah, because he was big, they called him an org. Look, I get it, but kids don't nearly normally try to kill 
kill somebody at a very early age, before adolescence, you know, before puberty, I mean, uh, unless there's something wrong with this kid. And then he, his father dies, and he really goes off. Then he, begins, he becomes a bully. He begins bullying people all the time. He's constantly talking about being a serial killer. That even in his teen years, that's what he talks about. I want to be a serial killer. He has posters of serial killers. He talks about them. He reenacts what they do. And, and then, again, he's not this ugly guy that no one wants to talk to. He gets married, Matt. He has a child. Of course, his wife throws him out after a while because he had all these, these issues. And then he starts drifting in and out. There's not a whole lot about his education, other than this guy is a bully. He likes bullying people. Hold on. All right, so let me call you back so we can start talking about this guy's crimes and what he does. And um, all right, so let me call right back. Yeah, so you were saying he becomes a bully. He's a pretty physically intimidating guy, and... He, he's just yeah, he, kind of a terror. He is, and he uses his body, meaning he's physical, he likes putting hands on people, it's very very personal for him. He likes to uh, he likes to express his dominance over people very early on. So as I mentioned, his wife throws him out of the house, and he begins to drift in and out of the homeless uh, community. And for periods, you know, he'll go from his wife's house, he'll become homeless again, and he'll go to these large warehouses where I guess in Nottingham or in, in, in London there are, you know, Britain there are these encampments where these homeless people are at. And very soon he becomes a terror to them. They're very afraid of this guy. But they go to him because he sells drugs to them. And when they don't pay enough or they they, they look too pathetic, he becomes very violent. And he, he, he hits them. He, he crosses the street just to beat people up. Um, he takes their money. So they're almost damned if they do, damned if they don't. They Obviously, these people have mental issues. Uh, they need the drugs that he has. They're addicted to them. And he uses this to his advantage. Um, and it, look, this guy is different than other serial killers because it comes on so quickly, so violently, that within a really a three or four week period is the time that this guy murders and he does so so quickly and he, his own mouth gets him in trouble it's like he didn't care about getting caught because as long as he got the reputation and that's what I've seen about this guy now he's really interested that people be afraid of him that people know that he's a threat that he's a physical threat it gets him off he believes that you respect to have for him when it's really actually just fear. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a weird... Because he's not homeless. He could live with his mom in, I think, a, I don't know, a pretty decent house from what I understand or a, a nice enough place. And he kind of chooses to be this scallywag, homeless tramp guy and... These are, like, the people he associates with. These are the people who are, like, the closest thing he has to friends. And, uh, like, I mean, what is he working with? What is he working with mentally, do you think? I mean, was he the kind of guy that, that you know, couldn't hold employment? Or 
is he reasonably smart or or what? Because he, he's kind of homeless almost by choice. Well, I think he's, he's very immature, but I, I believe that he's also intelligent. I mean, from a very early age, he's talking about wanting to be known as a killer. He loves serial killers. And as an adult, the pattern continues. It doesn't change any. And his, his position is to be a drug dealer. He strives to it. It's like when people worship the mob and these gangsters, and, and they want to be like them, and they begin to imitate them. This is pretty close to what this guy does. No difference. So, what he does, which happens suddenly, and again, he's been talking about this for a very long time, is he meets a girl by the name of Zoe Pennick and another one by the name of Katie Baxter. So, he immediately, and, and let me give you some background on Miss Baxter. She helps the homeless. She is a person who goes to these, these communities. She tries to help them as best she can. Um, I don't know if she's been homeless or not, or is homeless, but she definitely helps the homeless. And he invites her over to this place he's staying. It's like a warehouse. It's an abandoned warehouse. He has a little tent there. And he invites her into the tent. Now, whether she went there because maybe she felt he was... Um, needed help or maybe that maybe she was interested in him in some way we don't know this for sure but as soon as he invites her in he it's like almost a switch turns on in this guy and and one thing about this guy is that this guy mark martin he looks at people's objects he doesn't see them as human breathing living people that have feelings to him the only feelings that count are his own so as soon as he goes into his tent, he just becomes very violent, and he strangles and beats her to death. There seems to be no provocation other than that she is there with him. So he kills her, and during the struggle, she scratches him with her fingernails. And I think he knows enough about DNA that he understands that they, they're going to catch him. So he burns her fingers, basically to the bone. He burns them so he can't produce DNA from under her fingernails. And then he takes her body very close to where his tent is within the building, which is an abandoned warehouse, and he buries her under a bunch of rubble. Not the most, uh, you know, the smartest move in the world. You bury someone within the building you're living in, but that's what he does. And this happens right around right before Christmas time, the 29th, or a little bit after, the 29th of December, 2004. Within a couple of days, he focuses on a woman who is um, a heroin addict. Her name is Zoe Bennett. I mentioned her before. And again, he invites her to his warehouse to get loaded, to use drugs, to sell drugs, and she begins to use drugs while she's there with him in the short time that she's there. And she leaves one of the needles out. And this is according to him, that upset him. So he immediately, again, he beats and strangles her to death. And he has no qualms about taking her, her body, and buries her in a bunch of debris in the warehouse under bricks 
very close to where Zoe, uh, where Katie uh, Baxter is. And this is only two days later. So you have a, a murder on the 29th, a murder on the 31st, and this guy has no regard for these people. He leaves them there. He just throws the bodies there. doesn't matter to him. And look, Tamiri knows that this guy is a killer, that he's very aggressive, and that he, in fact, is a danger to the whole community. And they don't want him there. So he decides to move away. He moves on. Doesn't go very far, but he moves on. So he doesn't become a threat to them or an immediate threat. And they kind of, at least in his mind, they forget him. So, again, this guy, it's incredible in the time frame. Within a few days, he goes to a place where these people squat. They're called squatters. They're in a house that's probably not too abandoned, but these people go in there and they take over the house until they kick him out or something. And there he meets Elaine, or Elaine. It's a 25-year-old woman, and she's a heroin addict. And this house is for people off the grid. You know, they're, they're homeless, but they're not. They're, you know, they're, they're, they got problems, but they can't pull themselves out of it. And it's incredible what he does in this situation. Matt, I mean, I don't know about you, but does it even logical that this guy would kill two women in a three-day span because things are getting hot from he leaves, goes to another small community, which is basically a squatter's house, and he's about to kill again without any provocation. No, it's almost like he understood that you should pick on the, or not pick on, but target the homeless because they're vulnerable and transient. That he almost overestimated how much so that's true or something. I mean, yeah, like it's easier to kill homeless people, but you, you know, you can't just walk up to them in the street and kill them. Like you're going to get caught. Yeah, and it, and it looks like um, this guy, because he loves serial killers so much, he worshipped them, but he did do a little bit of studying on them. And and I say this because, you know, he he doesn't cover his tracks very well, but he tries to a little bit. And it's almost to me like he wants to get the notoriety. He wants people to know it's him, but not so much when the police come knocking on his door. Which I, I know sounds kind of weird, but it's like... He tells me, you know, you know, I'm a killer. You know, I, I kill people. Well, who have you killed? Well, you know, there's people I've killed. He likes the intrigue that it gives him. He likes that it it makes him like for an awe of this guy because they fear him. But not so much where he wants the police knocking on his door, which is a, it's a very fine line that he walks. So what he does in this situation, he he goes to this, this these people's house because a couple people were living there. And and then this woman refuses to pay him 10 pounds. He's asking for a loan. And 10 pounds is what, about $15, $16? I'm not sure exactly the translation is, but she refuses. She doesn't have a lot of money. He asks for money. She's living in his, in his squatter's house. And she, he says, she says no to him. And he responds, the way that he's responded, 
in the first two instances. He strangles and beats you to death. Then he places you on the couch and he sets the the couch on fire. And I found that interesting and very disturbing. First of all, that he strangles and beats them again because he wants to be very it's a very personal thing. Like there's a rage against women, a rage against the gender. But that he placed her on the couch and then he set her on fire. Got me to think. So man, I did something that I haven't done on this show before. Uh, well, all of a sudden, as I went outside, and there is a serial arsonist murderer here, and I've studied him for a while. I've interviewed him, of course, without him knowing it, and I asked him because we've had these conversations before, and I I wear a mask in front of these guys. I fool this guy and the rest of these serial killers into confiding in me, so I get information about their crimes, about how they think, and it gives an insight that probably no one else has. So I asked them, so you set people on fire once you kill them. Is, is there a particular reason why? And, and if someone else does it, why would they do it? I wanted to get a perspective from a person who actually thinks about what, and this guy, although he's twisted, he's fairly intelligent. You can be both, by the way. So when I asked him, he looked at me and he said, well, once I kill the person, the only thing left is the body. Fire destroys the person even further. Those are his exact words. So I, I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you can't kill him again. I, I can strangle a person all day long. I can beat on them all day. It's gone. There's nothing there. But if you burn the person, it destroys the person further. And that's all he would explain, which gives me some kind of insight into the rage and anger that this guy has towards the community, specifically women, and it's based on that. That he, from the very beginning, when he killed Katie, when he killed Zoe, and then when he kills Elaine, it seems that he wants to destroy the person even further. Kind of crazy, right? Yeah, that's pretty messed up. I wouldn't have thought of that. No, well, me either. I've never heard that before. But I wanted you and the audience to get a good glimpse at what a killer does when killing is not enough. And I, I put two and two together when I read that he put her on the couch and he burned her. So most people would say, well, he did it because he wanted to destroy the evidence. Okay, that's logical. But it didn't strike the same type of chord with me. And I saw another case, which is the yogurt murders in Texas, which I was studying, and I saw the similarities. I can't talk to those killers, so I talked to one that I knew did exactly that. Let me call back. Yeah, it's interesting. So he's getting off on mutilating the body, basically. But it's also effective to a degree, it's probably not a bad idea if you're trying to conceal evidence. Um, can we go back to, like you said, that maybe he's stringing these murders along to almost create a trail, like to get some attention so that there's like a narrative around him? Because later he will contact the authorities and kind of brag about 
what he's done, but then he won't talk. But so do you really think he's he's planned this out to kind of like create a little cluster so that, you know, they're aware that there's a killer out there? Well, I think it's subconsciously he's doing it. He's bragging because that's what he does. And that's what he does. He begins to brag about the murders. And, you know, the police are investigating the disappearances of 31. And he has told so many people about that he's killed people that it doesn't take long for the police to know that this guy's out there and that he has, in fact, bragged about killing. So, um... You know, they, 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 they talk to his friends, they talk to people that surround him, that have a relationship with him, and, and they're afraid of him. He's got two stooges that he runs around with, a guy by the name of John Ackley, or Askley, and Dean Kerr. And these two stooges immediately, well, you know, Mark, he talks about this, he talks about that. And it doesn't take long for the police to catch on to this guy. He keeps bragging about the murders. As soon as, look, this history lasts about three and a half weeks. That's it. But what's interesting about that, Matt, is that he kills two women by strangling and beating. The third one, he escalates the strangling and beating fire. What he's doing, which serial killers do with animals, and torturing animals, lighting fires, is they're looking for their way. They're feeling around the dark to find out who they are. This guy does it with people. Had this guy not gotten caught, he would have escalated even more. His M.O., which means the way he operates, would have, would have, it would have grown. It would have modified. He was, what he was doing was perfecting his way of killing. And I'm sure that the way, if he would have kept killing for a year, two years, the way he killed toward the end will be completely different from the way that he killed in the beginning. And what I mean by that is that his method would refine, or at least in his mind, and he would seek a way of killing that gave him the most pleasure. His, his uh, psychology or his, uh, what got him off was the gratification for this guy was complete control and fear. He liked to impose fear on people. He loved the type of attitude he gave people around him, that people got fidgety, that they were nervous, that they were intimidated by him, really got this guy off. It's what he liked. So, look, his own mouth got him caught. They arrest him. And the crazy part about this guy, he gets arrested, Matt, and his two buddies along with him, and he continues to love the attention that he has for being a killer. And in jail, he's bragging, I'm the first serial killer out of Nottingham. I'm Nottingham's first serial killer. The police look at the arrest him because they found the bodies in the place he was staying. They found both bodies of both Katie and Zoe were buried in that warehouse. The other body, the land, they, they knew it was there because the building caught on fire. And this guy immediately, when they take him the tree, he, he tells him, hey, it's me. One of his fellow cellies testified against him because he told them that once you kill one, then you should kill 20 or more. This is what his saying was. If you kill one, might as well kill 20. And he bragged about all the murders to everybody who would listen to him. I don't know what, what his plan was, if it was to get the notoriety for being a killer. 
he obviously got that. But um, the key witnesses against him were his two stooge buddies and another prisoner that was in the, the cell with him that he told everything that he had done. And they convicted him, gave him three murder charges and three life sentences. Yeah, so that's one of the uncommon aspects of this thing is he found two people to participate with him in this. And there's instances that we've heard where someone has a partner. This guy found two guys, John Ashley and Dean Carr. Uh, now, Mark Martin was, by all accounts, the ringleader of this thing. But still, he found two dudes that were into this or at least complacent and i mean maybe that's because he's hanging out with the dregs of society and you know people who are homeless and don't maybe aren't mentally all there or certainly don't have a lot going on and are, are vulnerable and i don't know but the fact that he found two guys to me is strange it, it isn't common but let's think back to william body freeway killer. He not only got one guy to participate with him, he ended up getting three different co-conspirators and co-murderers, if you want to call them, to rape, torture, and kill children. So it is, it isn't common, but it isn't unheard of. Serial killers hang around with really bad people. And usually it's not that difficult to find someone that would be subservient to you or submissive to you uh, for whatever reason, and they become complaints and they obviously participate. We don't know the extent of what these guys did, his partners. I believe they knew about it. Um, they may have helped with the bodies, put them away somewhere. But in terms of the killing part, I believe that Mark Martin did all the killing himself. He would not have allowed another person to participate in the killing because it would have taken away from his fame. It would have taken away from his dominance. So I don't believe that's true. I believe those other guys knew about it. They may have helped them dispose of the bodies. But in terms of the murders themselves, I believe that Mark is the sole killer here. And he killed for his own selfish reasons that were all based in narcissism, ego, and just this twisted sense of what respect is in, 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 uh, in his life. Which is why he started contacting the police during the investigation of these bodies being discovered. And he was towing a line, I think, between confessing and just basking in the attention from law enforcement a little bit, which is not uncommon either to leave clues and stuff. But I think it's pretty rare that a guy actually just calls the police uh, like, Maybe BTK comes to mind, but, uh, and infuriatingly enough, he would, he would call them, tell me he wanted to talk. And then when he got into the room, he wouldn't talk, which is, that's just like a Kevin Spacey level villain, uh, type of thing. So he's, he's kind of manipulative. I don't know if it's a shtick or what, but I mean, have you heard of like a guy just contacting the fleet? If you do that, if you personally identify yourself calling the police, hey man, I'm your guy. You're not just looking for a little attention. I mean, you want to get caught at that point. Right? But yeah, well, this is part of that whole thing of ego and, and narcissism. He's got extreme narcissism. 
his levels of narcissistic behavior are off the charts. He's contacting the police because he wants to get caught. He wants to know, he, he feels a sense of importance when they come get him or they come look for him, they come talk to him. BTK did a lot of that. He didn't tell him who he was, but he gave him the name. Hey, call me, you know, BTK. And here's a here's a, a drive from uh, that gives you evidence. You can't possibly find out who uh, who's sending this, right? Police says, "Oh no, absolutely not." Well, of course they had t- technicians and and uh, software engineers that could look at the disk and tell you exactly where it came from, and it had his name on there. So at that point, with BTK did it for so long, I believe, as I mentioned in those episodes, that he wanted to get caught. He already put a name to the killer. He He'd done the killing for so long, the only thing left was to put a face to the killer. And that is the ultimate control. For this guy, it's the same thing. He did it a lot quicker. It only took him three murders, and I don't mean just only. Three lives are lost. But he did it so quickly because he was anticipating the, 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 the ultimate climax was to put a face to the killer. And that is the ultimate control for these types. Because now they control it. They own it. It's their responsibility. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time type of thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an encore bow for these killers. And that's what this guy got. He's probably walking around that prison now, happy as a jaybird. Yeah, and we hear this a lot. I'm vaguely aware of it. I'm not even going to pretend to know the specifics of it. But in the UK, I guess you can't really get life in prison. So this guy got life in prison but he can still get out I, I guess it's they don't have a life without parole i think i have that right Correct. okay so that's uh maybe they should they should have that yeah a person like that it kills and he kills basically for no reason and he does so as a serial offender yeah those those type of guys you really have to think about the whole release process. Now, a person has a problem, he ends up killing somebody, he rehabilitates, he thinks about it, he expresses remorse, he was young. There are people that can be rehabilitated. But a guy like this who's bragging about it from a kid, he shows that type of tenacity to be a killer, wanted to be a killer, he wants to put a face, and if you let him out, he's going to do the same thing over again. So, so, Bill, do you think... Do you think he ever is sitting around in prison and he's like, you know, man, I'd like to see the ocean. I'd like to go to a, a, who would he be a fan of? The Cure concert. I want to do any number of things. I want to have real friends and a family. I'm sick of eating neutral loaf. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have killed those people and then bragged about it. Do you think he ever does that? Thinks that? Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that's his story. And I mean, this was for the, our uh, our friends and, uh, and listeners in the UK. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting cases that people have been sending us. And I want to 
we're gonna get to those in the next year um, as well as uh, you know other other stuff too but we do appreciate it so yeah everyone check out the patreon page again patreon.com slash death row diaries and we're gonna have big news coming up in the next year with the show and yeah so thank you guys for listening anything else you want to add bill no only merry christmas and i hope everybody has a safe holiday season well until next time i've been matt ralston and i wanted to go be safe be aware of your surroundings your life depends on it